Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, y'all. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have a really exciting interview to share with you where we spoke to Celia Cole, who is the CEO of Feeding Texas. Feeding Texas is, help me understand what this is, Nicole. I think they oversee all of the food banks in Texas. Is this right? Yes. They are the connecting point of the 21 food banks that are in Texas. Thank you. And Celia is incredible. She has been doing this work for 25 years, work in the nonprofit space in trying to alleviate hunger in Texas. So she has so much knowledge about what's happening now, what's happened in the past, the solutions that have been effective, the ones that haven't helped as much. And she helped give us a better understanding of what the state's role is in combating food insecurity, what Texas's role is, what NGOs role is is, which stands for non-government organizations. Not going to lie. I've had to look that up a couple times. And she just puts it together really well about how we have to, it's a multi-pronged problem. Everyone has a role and the importance of working together to see real change happen, real long-lasting systemic change. So I learned a lot. I was just telling Nicole right now, we were talking about like SNAP benefits and WIC, which are federal programs, learn that, but that even when you apply for some of these assistance programs, you still have to wait like 30 plus days to get approval or not. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So you're applying. So you you have a high need and you still have to wait. So what do you do in the meantime? And it's things I never thought about because I've never had to experience this, but I definitely have a better sense of what it's like for those folks. And I would like to see it be less time for them. So how do we do that? But anyway, lots of great food for thought. What are some of the things you're thinking about, Nicole? Well, it was really nice to have something to be proud of Texas for having done. And Celia pointed out that we in Texas created or were, I guess, kind of on the front lines of creating an electronic version of applying for multiple programs at once. And so, and Texas was one of the first states to adopt kind of the card system. You know how it works, kind of like a debit card. I was really heartened to hear that. Um, It was nice to hear that Texas was doing something that was technologically kind of advanced in this space. So I do want to also point out to folks, and you'll hear us talk about this in the episode, but Celia is actually at the Capitol during the recording of this, which also speaks to the important work she's doing. So the sound quality is a little bit echoey, a little bit different. You'll hear some background noise, but just keep in mind why that is, because she's doing the important work that her organization does. So just prepare your ears for a little bit of a different sound. Yes. Thank you for that heads up, Nicole. All right, y'all. Let's listen to our interview with Celia Cole. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited today to talk with Celia Cole, who is the CEO of Feeding Texas. Hi, Celia. How are you doing? Hi, Claire. How are you? Thanks for having me today. Yes. And you were telling us that you're at the Capitol today. I am. That's my background. The beautiful wood paneling at the Capitol. (laughs) 
Yeah, as a Texas capital for our listeners, it is the legislative session. So there's lots of activity happening right now, lots of decision making. So there's a lot of work being done at the Capitol and lots of our friends are there pushing forward their important advocacy work. So Celia, to get started, we love to get to know a little bit more about our guests, about where they came from, about how they got interested in their work. So can you just tell us, are you from Texas? Well, I have to admit I'm not. I've been here 29 years, so I'm on my way to earning my stripes as a Texan, but it can take a long time. But yeah, I, I came here after grad school, or for grad school, actually, and then I ended up staying. But originally, I'm from New Haven, Connecticut, oh. and that's where I grew up and spent most of my life there. And then a couple of years in California, I started my career working for the peace movement out in California in the Bay Area, and then came here in 1994 to Austin to get a master's degree. Wonderful. You know, it's funny. I feel like a lot of people I know recently are from New Haven, and I'm like, isn't that a small area? And yet (laughs) all these people seem to circulate through there. Yeah, Yeah, small state, pretty very urban area, very poor city, but its big claim to fame is Yale University. And like a lot of college Uh towns, they they would be nothing without the college. Right or like Austin so many years ago. And now it's everything. Sleepy little college town. No more. (laughs) Yes. Well, since this is a political podcast, we're curious to know a little bit more about what your childhood was like regarding politics. Did you come from a family that discussed politics? Yes. Although there were certain topics that were always off limits that we couldn't discuss. We'd sometimes put signs up on the door that said, don't talk about this at family gatherings. As my dad was intensely political and certain things could just set him off. But we were a family that was very sort of united and had the same political beliefs. And so we haven't gone through a lot of the challenges that I know a lot of my friends have in the past few years when politics has become so divided where certain family members aren't even invited anymore. So uh, we actually do a charity gift exchange at Christmas every year where we draw, draw names and then you get you make a donation to a charity that you think the person whose name you've drawn would like. And then we get together and share sort of the charities. And because I think we're also like-minded politically, everybody gives to the same charities and it's not that interesting. (laughs) So yeah, my parents were very active. They were sort of activists and they were fairly non-conventional people, but they did a lot of work around the nuclear weapons freeze in the 80s. They were really involved in Central American solidarity work, and we're part of a big sister city project between New Haven and Leon, Nicaragua. So I kind of grew up in, I always joke, it's like a family that was always protesting one thing or boycotting something else. Uh, and I yeah. think that's where I got bit at an early age by sort of that desire to bring about change and a sense of justice. Yes, yes, so important. So speaking of change and justice, what was it that drew you to nonprofit work? I think just that it was the best space in which I think, at least back in sort of the 90s when I started doing this work, it was really the best space in which to bring about change. And maybe that's changed a little bit over time as I think business has become more socially involved and you have more social enterprises now. And But when I started doing this work, it was through nonprofits that you were able to really sort of make a difference. And I've been in the nonprofit space really my whole career. I worked very briefly for a private consulting firm after grad school. But other than that, and I worked briefly for the state, for the Department of Human Services in Texas, which no longer exists. So a brief stint there, a brief stint in the private sector, but my heart's with the nonprofit sector. 
Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about Feeding Texas? Well, about Feeding Texas and then how you ended up working there? Sure. So Feeding Texas is the state association that supports all of the food banks in Texas. So there's 21 and they each have a different geographic area that they serve, but collectively they serve the whole state. So it's truly a statewide network. And we support them in a variety of different ways by being their voice here at the Capitol and supporting our national network, Feeding America, at the federal level in sort of policy debates. They also do a lot of statewide coordination of their work, particularly during disaster and with crisis response, as in the case of the pandemic. A lot of government relations, fundraising, and statewide coordination. Our network is vast and diverse. And like I said, we cover every corner of the state of Texas, but we're all united in a common mission to end hunger in the state. And I came to Feeding Texas. I didn't have a specific background in nutrition policy or anti-hunger, but I was very interested in sort of just generally kind of social and economic justice issues. And I had worked for Every Texan, formerly the Center for Public Policy Priorities, for 14 years as their nutrition policy analyst. So during that time, I had a lot of opportunity to work with the food banks, and they just seemed like this sort of natural army on the ground fighting hunger. And I was, when the opportunity came up, I guess now 11 years ago, to lead the network, it was really appealing to me. Think about having that sort of army of hunger fighters at my disposal. Absolutely. I think you shared with us that you've been fighting hunger for 25 years. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen over that 25-year time frame? Is alleviating hunger in Texas getting better or is the gap widening? Like, Where would you say we are on this trajectory so far? Yeah, no, I think actually we've brought food insecurity down over the years. And I think that's largely due to making sure we maintain investments in programs like SNAP and the other federal nutrition programs And obviously, waxes and wanes, food insecurity rises during bad economic times and then comes back down. But I think a real testament to the effectiveness of our federal nutrition safety net came during the pandemic, where, you know, we really bolstered aid to families who were struggling through SNAP and through the child nutrition programs and WIC. And at a time when you would have expected food insecurity to soar, it didn't actually And it actually went down. And I think when we properly invest in programs designed to prevent hunger, we can can keep people from suffering. I don't think we've done a good job getting at the root causes of hunger. And so I think until we really tackle that, you're never going to really get rid of hunger. We talk about eliminating hunger. And what we're really talking about is keeping people who are struggling with food insecurity, facing food insecurity from going hungry. But the problems underlying food insecurity, I don't think we've done a good job or gotten better at. And I think when someone is going hungry, it's not really about food, it's about money. And so it's about lack of resources. And so until we can tackle some of those underlying causes of poverty and really really tackle the intersection between race and poverty, particularly, I think we're always going to see high levels of hunger. I was hoping we could maybe back up just a little bit so that people understand what the resources are that are available when they're available for people. If you could tell us more about SNAP and WIC. Yeah. So the Federal Nutrition Safety Net is, it's got maybe 15 programs total, but the big ones are SNAP and WIC and then the school meal programs, breakfast and lunch. And then there's 
an after-school program and a summer program that kind of are add-ons to the school meal program. So those are the big ones. SNAP is the biggest. It's really kind of our nation's backbone defense against hunger. It reaches a lot of people, and it also reaches a lot of different kinds of people. So it's the broadest of the federal nutrition programs in terms of scope and scale. And basically, it provides people with a debit card or a debit-like card. They call it an EBT card to purchase groceries at the supermarket. So it's an income transfer program. And people are eligible with income up to 165% of the poverty level in Texas. And your net income has to be below poverty. So it serves mostly people who are living in poverty. It reaches families with kids. It reaches seniors. It reaches people with disabilities. Single adults can get SNAP. You don't have to have children. So it's a very broad program. And the average benefit is per person per month, about $130. It's intended to be a supplemental program. And that's what SNAP stands for, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. But it's a way to provide people with kind of an ongoing source of resources for food versus what the Charitable Food Bank, the Charitable Feeding Network does and food banks do, which is we're really not intended to be a year-round source of reliable food. We're there really to kind of fill in the gaps, help people during crisis, help people when their SNAP benefits run out, help people who aren't qual- don't qualify for SNAP. And that brings me back to who qualifies for SNAP. Like I said, it's a very sort of expansive program. It's for citizens and most legal permanent residents, undocumented people can't get SNAP. So in Texas, that's often a population that falls through the cracks and has higher levels of hunger as a result. There are work requirements. So if you're able-bodied, you must work in order to keep benefits. And there's time limits for single adults who are able-bodied. I want to like just highlight something because I feel like this is such a misconception. We got some feedback recently from our Immigration and the Border episode from one particular person who was saying that um, people cross and just sort of immediately start benefiting from benefit programs. And I, I, so I would love to, maybe if you could just say that again for the people in the back. No, I mean, undocumented immigrants, well, first of all, they come here to work <laughs> and they're spark plugs for our local and state and federal economy. So they are here first and foremost to work and whatever they take out in benefits, they more than pay for in taxes back into the system. So that's the main point I'd want to make. But no, no, virtually no undocumented immigrant can, well, they can't access SNAP, which is, like I said, the biggest of the federal nutrition programs. They're simply not eligible. And in fact, legal permanent residents face a bar upon entering the country. And so that's definitely a misconception. They're not driving caseloads. Can we talk a little bit about the root causes? Like, why are people going hungry? Well, I think it's really about difference in access to power and who has a voice in the system and who doesn't. And people who have a voice and have power are more likely to also have the resources that you need to thrive. And I think it goes back to lots of the discrimination in this country. And again, hunger fundamentally gets back to sort of who has power and who who doesn't. And that, of course, leads to poverty. It leads to inadequate access to health and housing and food, wealth. And uh, But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about who has power and who doesn't. Yeah, something I think that Nicole and I have been thinking about a lot is 
this idea of precarity and how you can be someone who's working and still come up short month over month over month. How do we get out of that cycle? So these folks aren't having to depend on SNAP or food banks, but can actually make a livable wage so that they are self-sufficient. I mean, is that a matter of policy change? What are your thoughts around that? Because I'm sure you work a lot in this realm. Yeah, I want to say that sort of that living month to month is not just exclusive of to people who are low income. I mean, I think one of the things the pandemic taught us is that the majority of Americans are living month to month, even when their incomes aren't below the poverty level. People with solidly middle class incomes don't have savings and are sort of living paycheck to paycheck. So when the pandemic hit and people were suddenly without a paycheck, many people, not just people who had been living in poverty beforehand, were forced to turn to food banks and, and SNAP. So I think the problem of a lack of savings and too many people kind of living on the edge is, is a much bigger problem than just the one facing people who are food insecure. So, I mean, I think that obviously doing whatever we can to increase wages so that they keep pace with the cost of living, I think that's probably ensuring that, that there's a path away to prosperity, that when people enter low-wage jobs, there's a path for them to get ahead. And I think you know, that was the promise of the American dream, is that if you worked hard, even if you started at the lowest rung of the ladder, that, that if you worked hard, you would move up and get ahead. And I just think it's simply not true anymore. I think we see too much wealth concentrated in too few hands, and that prosperity is not shared evenly. I'm curious, too, like how do we think of all this in terms of the role of the state versus the role of the federal government. Because what you've described with SNAP and WIC and the school lunch programs, if I'm understanding correctly, they're all federally based. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious what role the state plays in any of this. Yeah, I think they're all federally funded. SNAP is an entitlement program, which is important. So that means that no matter how many people, everyone who's eligible will get the benefit versus like a block grant where it's fixed. And so That's why it's such a, you know, being an entitlement program is so important. So when you have economic times are bad, or for example, during a pandemic and the need grows, the the program grows with it. And I think having it be a federal program also means there's federal standards, both for who gets benefits, also what kind of benefits you get. And if it were a state program, it would really be up to the state to set those rules. And you might have some states providing much more generous benefits and higher eligibility levels and other states doing something different. So I think that an eligibility structure is really important. I think also because states can't borrow like the federal government, they can't have the same sort of deficit that the federal government can. So when states are low on revenue, they tend to cut services. They have to cut services. So keeping having it be a federal program is really important because it allows us to keep the program strong at the times when it's needed most, which tends to be when when state coffers are depleted. But there's a lot of flexibility in the SNAP program and really in all the nutrition programs to basically give states options to make the program work best for them and, and meet the target population in their state. And that's good and bad. I think we've, in some states, they've taken advantage of options to make the program work better. I think in Texas, we've kind of gone in the other direction and taken advantage of options that limit eligibility or limit enrollment and not taken advantage of options that could allow us to make sure that the program works better and reaches people more effectively. So typically, when we're at the Capitol working on SNAP policy, it's about convincing the state that 
these options will make the program work better for Texas. And it doesn't come at a cost for Texas because the benefits are all federally funded. So if it's a change that'll lead to more people being eligible, it doesn't affect the state budget. Can you tell us about some of the opposition that you hear? Because if it's available, if it's not coming out of Texas's budget, why wouldn't you take the win, so to speak? Well, I think that in general, I mean, everyone agrees, I think almost across the board at the state legislature, in the public, that hunger is a bad thing, that kids shouldn't go hungry, that seniors shouldn't have to choose between food and medicine, or families shouldn't have to choose between putting gas in the car and feeding themselves. So it's not a disagreement over the problem. I mean, we quibble over the extent of the problem and the causes of the problem, but everyone agrees that hunger shouldn't, food shouldn't be an impossible choice and no one should go hungry. I think when it comes to the solutions that there's the most disagreement, and I think that just gets down to ideology and people come to policymaking with pretty much a set, core set of beliefs about the role of government in fighting social problems. And some people believe that government should be limited and other people believe that government has a big role to play in sort of leveling the playing field. Can we talk more about that? And Nicole, I'd love it if you jump in, because you were sharing in a previous interview how you saw a state representative or it was someone who was making the case that these programs, these like social welfare programs should be provided by NGOs, not government. Am I saying this right, Nicole? Yeah. Well, yes. There was a little bit of, I think, me trying to interpret what her... um, campaign website said. But Cecilia, what happened was I was driving and I saw a bumper sticker that I'd never seen before. And it was this candidate's name. And then the tagline was, make America like Texas. And I thought, curious, what does that mean? So I went home and Googled the the name and the slogan. And what I discovered was that this is a Texas rep and she was elected. And within what she describes as what she thinks is so great about Texas and what she wants to see more of is small government. I know that that's a relatively common conservative way of of looking at government. But also, she believes that charitable organizations and NGOs are supposed to fill the gap. I mean, she that's just a core part of her belief. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting ideologically. Yeah, I think we get too caught up in big versus small government. I mean, it's all relative, right? So Texas is typically a high need, low service state. And so the question is sort of what's a minimum standard? And do we want it to be a standard of deprivation or a standard where the expectation is people will have enough money to meet their basic needs and save for the future? I think that's the standard we should be aiming for. So really, I think it's about being smart government or good government versus big or small government. And then the second thing I'd say is that I think we need to be really focused in on the role of the private sector versus the role of government. And by the private sector, I mean both nonprofits and businesses. And I think we all have a role to play. And the question is, what's the right role for the nonprofit sector versus the role for government? So when it comes to providing poor services and keeping people from going hungry, the nonprofit sector plays a really critical role. I mean, the charitable food assistance network, food banks, um, to play in a really important role, keeping people from going hungry. But it is a supplementary role. Like I said, we're not set up to feed people year round. That is a role that if people are in need at chronic food insecurity and need to have ongoing resources for food, the only way we're going to be able to meet 
that level of need is with programs like SNAP that everybody pays into and that everybody can draw from. So I think one sort of piece of social math that we use in the food bank network is that for every meal that food banks put on the table in Texas, SNAP puts nine meals on the table. So that just gives you a sense of the scope of what the charitable feeding system can do versus the federal government and programs like SNAP. And I'm not trying to downplay the role of food banks because we distribute 800 million pounds of food a year and serve millions and millions of Texans and play a really important role in supplementing their resources. And, but we were not set up to prevent a big a problem like hunger on a really big scale. And I think there's other things that the nonprofit sector does really well and where I think the roles often should be devolved to the nonprofit sector. And again, thinking about our food banks, we're incredibly nimble. We can sort of turn on a dime. When the pandemic hit, we had to sort of pivot overnight in terms of how we reached people. We lost our volunteers. We lost a lot of our local distribution partners and, and need doubled virtually overnight. And I think food banks did an incredible job pivoting and finding new ways to sort of meet that need. And government doesn't pivot quickly, with good reason. I think that, that there's lots of regulations that even if not all of them make sense now, they were typically all put there in the first place for a reason. It's taxpayer money, so we have to be really careful about how it's spent. And because of that, that does create so-called red tape and it's hard for government to move and shift quickly, and nonprofits can. And so I think that's another role that's really important for nonprofits to play. And we do a great job, I think, meeting local needs because we're really entrenched in our communities in a way that government isn't. So one of the programs that we run for the food banks is a statewide SNAP application assistance program. So SNAP is a federal program. It's administered in Texas at the state level by state workers, and they're under federal law, they have to be the ones to determine who gets the benefits. The nonprofit private sector can't play that role. But we help people apply, and we are able to provide, I think, one-on-one -on -one really localized assistance that the state workers don't have the time or aren't, aren't necessarily in a good position to do. So it's a great partnership because ultimately it's the state that says, you're eligible or you're not, and here's how much benefits you're eligible for. But we really understand the needs of local communities and can provide that additional support. I think it would be good, don't you think, Claire, if we could walk through what that looks like for somebody who needs to apply for SNAP? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, fortunately, it's gotten a lot better over the years, easier. And I think that's a real credit to Texas. So I think in many ways, Texas is that good government state that I described. They were way ahead of the game when it came to using technology to help people access SNAP and other benefits. They're one of the first states to adopt use of an electronic benefits card. You know, the reason SNAP used to be called food stamps is there were actually sort of paper stamps that you would go redeem for food. And it wasn't that long ago that we were still using paper stamps. So Texas was really ahead of the game there and kind of leveraging technology to modernize the program. And so, for example, we have over a decade now had an online portal called yourtexasbenefits.com where people can go apply for benefits, renew their benefits, upload documentation, check their eligibility. And it's an integrated eligibility system in Texas. So when you apply for SNAP, your application also will go through for Medicaid, children's health insurance, long-term care, temporary assistance for needy families, which is the cash assistance program. So that's the good news, and that's made the program more accessible, easier to apply to for most people. Obviously, for people who struggle to use technology, 
or don't have access to a computer or the internet, internet are living in areas with limited you know, Wi-Fi, which is a pretty big swath of rural Texas, gets posed challenges. It hasn't necessarily become easier. And then I think it's a very long and cumbersome application. So whether you're doing that online or on paper, it is a lot of questions. It's a lot of documentation. It's complicated to understand as a person applying for benefits. When you add to that, that someone is in a situation of crisis where they may not be thinking as clearly as they would otherwise, or you have people who have cognitive disabilities or low literacy or language barriers or anything else. So it is a complicated program to access, which is why I think the the food bank application assistance program is so important because it helps those people that might just give up or otherwise fall through the cracks, make it through the system. So it sounds like y'all come and help hold their hands and say, we're going to work with you through this application and make it an easier process. Exactly. Just help them understand the rules and figure out what they need, documentation they need to provide. Goal, and this is a partnership we have with the state. We have a contract with the state to do this work. And so the goal is to submit a complete and accurate application on the first try. So the benefit to the state then is it it lowers the amount of work and touches on the application that their, their workers have to do. I'm just curious, how quickly do people hear back if they're approved or not? Is it pretty quickly or do they have to wait a while? So the federal standard is you have 30 days to process an application, seven days for what they call an emergency or an expedited application. And that's for people who literally have no money or resources for food. So someone coming out of the criminal justice system, someone who's homeless, someone who the only worker in the family has lost a job and there are no savings. Their applications are typically expedited and the federal standard is seven days, but we're not always able to meet those standards. So for example, the state got hit by the same labor issues that everyone else did following the pandemic and they lost a lot of their staff and were really struggling to build back up. And during that time, people were often waiting months. And I think now the standard has gotten better, but people are still waiting longer than that 30-day standard to get benefits that also leads to higher need for food charity. So we see a lot of people who are waiting to get their application processed. And that can be super frustrating for someone that is in crisis again. And it can cause significant hunger if somebody actually has no money for food. Right. Yeah. Well, that's helpful to know just like, what is that gap? And then it continues on because you're waiting to see if you get approved or not. Something that I came across when I was researching food insecurity, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that one in eight Texans is food insecure. Is that accurate? Is it about that? Yeah, that's the most recent data. One in eight Texans, one in five children struggle with food insecurity. Obviously, it touches every state. There's no one that really escapes the potential for food insecurity or hunger, but definitely certain populations are more likely to face hunger. We know that black and brown communities have higher rates of hunger. Seniors typically have higher rates of hunger. Now people living in rural areas, families with kids, immigrants, people with language barriers. So yeah, this seems incredibly high to me. And I feel like it's not as top of mind in my everyday life, like I wish it was. And I get the sense that it's maybe an invisible problem, invisible in the sense that the media doesn't report on it as much, or because like we sort of stay to our social groups, our social economic groups, maybe it, because we don't encounter it on an ongoing basis, it's not top of mind. Would you say that's accurate? Do you think like the public consciousness realizes how many folks are on that razor's edge? I don't think so. I mean, I definitely think that hunger became more visible during the pandemic and 
a lot of that was because the food banks, I think, were having to host mega distributions in very public places. In Texas, it was convention centers and the Alamo Dome and big malls, parking lots. And so people saw hunger in a way that they didn't before. And I think we definitely saw an increased sort of awareness as a result of the pandemic. But yeah, I think people do tend to stick to their social class groups. And so it's rare that if you have, you know, a decent living and middle-class standard living, or you're wealthy, that you're going to be friends with people who don't have any money. So I think that's, we tend to stick to people who think like us, look like us, um, and have a lifestyle like us. So that's, I think it's that lack of awareness. It's not like a lack of caring, but just people don't understand. It's hard to imagine. It's also just hard to imagine in a country as wealthy as the United States, that there are so many people living on the margins. Yeah. What have you found that's been effective to bring awareness and awaken, so to speak, more people to the fact that there are a lot of Americans who are struggling, like uh, chronically struggling? Yeah. I mean, I think definitely relying on social media has been great as a way to increase awareness, particularly among younger people. I think you pointed out that the media doesn't always cover it. I think they often cover it as sort of when it's a crisis situation or when it's bad news. And it can often be sort of reduced to an individual problem when the media covers it. And I think that leads people to believe that it's a problem that results from individual choices. And so if someone just worked harder or made better choices about how they spent their money or got an education, then then we wouldn't have this problem. And I think what we don't, what it's challenging to do is really raise awareness of hunger as a systemic problem which has systemic causes and therefore needs, requires systemic solutions. So if you think of it as an individual problem, then you're going to be likely to give to a food charity or a food bank and think, oh, I can solve this. Communities can just come together and solve the problem. But when you are able to make the case that it's a much more systemic problem, then I think that's when you can really uh, start talking about the big picture solutions. I do think, though, that social media has been great in terms of being able to reach more people with more effective messaging. Like I said, the pandemic, I think people just seeing it made a big difference. And then I think one thing that we're really focused on is not telling the story of people facing hunger, but really inviting people to tell their own stories and really reaching out to people with lived experiences to say in their own words what's going on, and then also to be part of informing the solutions. And I think that's been effective to get, particularly with policymakers, I think when they hear directly from someone particularly if it's a constituent that's struggling with hunger and why, I think they're more likely to be aware of and care about the problem. Do you think, Celia, that there is an appetite among Texas lawmakers to consider systemic problems or issues around hunger? Yeah, I mean, I think right now it's challenging because the state is so polarized and people are challenged to come together and find consensus just generally, it just it's a difficult environment in which to find compromise. And I think that's what government and that's what democracy is all about. And so when you have people so isolated from each other, feeling like they're coming from so many, so far away, it's really hard to come together and be able to forge that compromise or find that consensus. So I think right now, no. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I think again, sort of social media can do is really help sort of democratize politics and make it more accessible to people. And I think, like I said, I started this conversation by saying that 
hunger was really about unequal access to power. And I think democracy is about giving people access to power. And I think it, the more that we can get people participating in the democratic process, the better chance we have that we will have decision makers who are able to come together and be responsive to the needs of their constituents. Mm-hmm. I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, and it's something we think a lot about, this idea that Texas is the world's ninth largest economy. We're in the richest country in the world, and yet one in eight Texans is food insecure. So what is keeping us from preventing hunger in Texas and U.S.? It's like a real like head-scratcher, like, surely we have enough, right? <laughs> yeah. It's about distribution. I mean, the food is unevenly distributed. People have uneven access to food. They have uneven access to the resources needed for food. So I think the solution obviously has to start with those root causes. And really, we've got lots of proven effective interventions to prevent hunger. And I think the SNAP and the other federal nutrition programs are a great example. The work that the food banks are doing, particularly around produce access, I think is another really good example. We've got so much produce grown in Texas. I mean, I think we're one of the top ag-producing states in the nation. And a lot of that produce goes to waste, um, either because market conditions aren't right or the product itself is not pretty enough for the market, but perfectly edible. So that is the source of food that, um, again, very cost-effective for food banks to rescue that surplus produce. It's great nutrition for the people we serve. Uh, so we're really committed to making produce be a bigger and bigger part of the food that we distribute because it is, uh, again, such an abundant supply. It's a, so I think, you know, that's a great way to reduce food waste and really better distribute the agricultural resources. And that's what I mentioned earlier. I'm over here at the Capitol uh, talking about is funding to help us do that work. Well, Celia, I'm so glad that came up. And that feels like a question. I feel like I don't know what I don't know kind of feeling with what you just shared. So is there anything else that comes to mind like that, where it's like something that I think most of us wouldn't even consider that you have bumped up across as potential solutions or just things that people might not be aware of as some really great issues to sort of support and be behind? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think we're always looking for solutions and better ways of doing what we do. And I think the best thing to do is to look for what works already. And so investing in things that we know, evidence-based interventions that work, I think we have to be constantly piloting new things. And then when we see something that works, putting the resources needed to scale it, I think that's what we're working to do with our, with our produce initiative. I mean, I think that for people who care about this issue, sort of lay people who aren't working within the food bank network, I think just lifting their voice, being aware and understanding kind of the importance of participating in the democratic process, like I said, is probably the best thing that people can do. And then communities obviously do best when they come together around solutions. So like I said, the work that we're doing to really listen to people who are struggling with hunger and let them lead the way and tell us what they need and what the solutions are. I know one of the challenges food banks are facing or or really think what we're solving for is figuring out how to better reach communities that are most in need. So how can we achieve more equity in our work and find a way to distribute food to communities that are harder to reach? And so I think we've done a lot of experimentation with new types of partnerships, new types of ways of getting food to people through more mobile distribution sort of versus the 
churches and relying exclusively on local partners, finding ways to really get food out to people more efficiently. And then I think partnerships. I think the like I mentioned earlier, when I started this work, I picked the nonprofit space because it really felt like the only space to really make a difference. But I think we've got more and more businesses, big corporations that really understand that without a healthy and educated population, we don't have a healthy and educated workforce and we can't be prosperous economically. And so I think big, big companies have come to realize that. And in addition to just donating to charity, whether it's food or funds, they are rolling up their sleeves and partnering with nonprofits, partnering with government in sort of those real, more systemic solutions. And I don't know if you all are aware, there was a the second ever annual conference on hunger at the national level hosted by the White House a few months ago. And one of the, I think, big things to come out of that was uh, just a significant commitment of private sector resources to really support identifying those local solutions, but then also scaling them. Yeah. I mean, you're touching on this a little bit about like the innovation that's happening in the nonprofit space. Can you talk more? Because in my mind, I think food bank, I think like a stopgap to help people get through that immediate need. But are there other ways that food banks are innovating to help like, I guess, teach a man to fish, so to speak, so that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's been one of the big evolutions in food banking over the years. So one is just moving away from just non-perishable product to really focusing on kind of what food do people need to be healthy. And I think the other big sort of evolution has been what can we provide beyond food that will help people be able, whether self-sufficient or just be able to thrive. And so a lot of food banks have invested in healthcare partnerships because we know that poor health is one of the downstream consequences of hunger. And that can lead to a cycle, you know, where if you're unhealthy and you can't work and then you don't have money for food and then you have to go to a food bank. And so just, I think, figuring out how to address the health consequences of hunger is one thing food banks have been doing sort of beyond just sort of the core feeding people. And then I think what we've really recognized is the importance of partnerships. I mean, hunger is obviously a very intersectional issue. We can't be everything to everyone, but we can partner with other organizations in the community to really help refer people who come needing food to other resources. Because we know if, if, again, food is a money problem (laughs) more than anything, or hunger is a money problem more than anything. So if someone is running out of food, it's because they're running out of resources, which typically means they may have you know, I need help with housing or health or job training. And so um, we can't provide that all, but we are building really strong referral systems where we can refer people out to the community for those additional resources. I think one thing that's really important to recognize about food banking and food distribution is that when we help alleviate that part of a family's budget, giving them food, that frees up their resources to pay for some of those other things. And so I think figuring out also how to flex the food bank muscle to help communities solve problems beyond hunger is also something that I think is food banks can be thinking about. Yeah. We'll just take up a little bit more of your time and we like to end on, you know, hopeful notes. So if you had a magic wand and you could change like one or two things to really nip this problem in the bud, what would that be? Let's see. Universal health care. <laughs> maybe universal childcare. I mean, I think really we need to make sure that working parents can feed their kids and care for their kids. And and in order for that, we just need to make sure there's basic 
systems are in place. I mean, a universal living wage, a basic, you know, I think is all of those things. If, if I could wave a magic wand, would I think immediately make a huge difference in reducing hunger. Absolutely. It's unreal how expensive childcare is. I have a two-year-old and I think we spend what, like $1,200 a month. And then I'm like, this is a lot for us and we're doing pretty good. How do other people do this? Yeah. yeah. I mean, no wonder birth rates are down kids are expensive. Okay. And then lastly, what's making you hopeful? Probably the people I work with. I have a team of about 22 staff and I just feel like they're an inspiration every day, just their passion for the work and kind of their creativity. And I think we're a very collaborative network. And so, yeah, I would definitely say it's the people doing this work and the people I'm surrounded by, who I'm learning from, who I get to lead. That's definitely what gives me hope. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate your dedication. And I made it sound like that was the end. There's actually one more part. The last part of our show (laughs) is our attention mentions, just to kind of lighten it up a little bit, where we just mention something that has our attention, like a show or an article or an event, maybe something that's happened, an experience recently. So let's see. Does anything come to mind? Have you seen like a great show that just helps you clear the slate at the end of the day? Well, so yeah, typically something that's mindless and helps to remove me. And I have to admit, I have for many years now been sort of binge watching The Walking Dead. I have a, I love zombie movies and zombie shows. And so I think anything, it, it's funny that I would say that things that are about the apocalypse or dystopian take me away from reality because it sometimes feels like with the pandemic in particular that we've been living through an apocalypse, but very mindless things are the things that I like to sort of unplug with at the end of the day. I hear you. I'll add on to that. I've been watching The Last of Us, which is kind of in that oh, zombie. That's next on my list as yeah. soon as I'm done with The Walking Is that good? Oh, it's really good. Yeah. And I would recommend if you're okay waiting, the hard part is it comes out every Sunday. So you got to yeah. wait, wait, wait. But when I started watching it, three episodes were out. So I was able to binge a little bit. Yeah. And of course, I started watching this when we had our power outage here in Austin. Mm. So it was weird because it's like, why would I want to watch this like intense, stressful thing when I'm living through an intense, stressful right. thing? And yet that did the trick for some reason. Well, I think that actually the thing I find most interesting about zombie movies or post-apocalyptic societies is just human behavior and how humans come together either to destroy each other or to form new societies. And I just think that's fascinating. Yes. This show really digs into that in a fascinating way. They, they really get into like the human side of yeah. the zombie outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. The zombies are just sort of like background. It's really about the humans. And I think that's, and sometimes we can learn from it, I think too. Like when you're faced with sort of real sort of survival needs, you know, what are the ways that people can come together and be supportive? I know that I always say this in the food banking world is that we're at our best when things are at their worst. The going gets tough when the tough gets going. And I think during times of disaster or big crisis is when our network is at its best, coming together, sharing, collaborating, thinking globally. Yeah, it's very impressive. How about you, Nicole? What's on your mind? Well, I'm going to totally change gears. I love that you guys are doing (laughs) these really kind of deep things. So I have been, well, okay, this is going to be a little bit roundabout. Married at First Sight Australia is a favorite. But last year when I watched it, I got a little too emotionally invested. So I've learned that really the way for me to watch it is to watch 
a YouTuber recap it. <laughs> and he's Australian and hilarious. And his name is Wilco. So uh, it's rehashed with Wilco on YouTube, who is recapping Married at First Sight Australia. It will crack you up if you just need a really like deep belly laugh. He's your guy. Nice. So that's what I've been watching. I'm writing this down. It's like Master Pancake, you know. <laughs> oh, it's definitely just escape. Really fun and silly. Yeah. Yeah. And we share this in our episode notes so people can go back and be like, what was that thing? And I actually get a lot of great content from our attention mentions when I'm surfing and like, oh, what to watch? Oh, yeah. When Nicole told me to watch because Nicole always has great stuff. <laughs> I had to stop buying books because <laughs> I'm behind on actually like catching up to read them. Yeah. <laughs> so from these attention mentions, yeah, I've had to I have like, a big stack put a moratorium. To my bed too. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to those. Well, thank you again, Celia, for your time. And as a reminder, if anyone's at South by Southwest, come see our panel, which will be March 13th. And yeah. we'll have that in our social media. So we would love to continue this conversation because it's important to bring attention to food insecurity in Texas. It's a problem. It's been a problem. So what can we do to fix it? Because now is the time. Let's get some solutions. Thank you both so much. And Clara and Nicole, I look to, forward to meeting you guys both in person next month. Yes, we can't wait. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.